Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you today? I'm good, but uh, I want to fix the world. I want uh, to fix our society. I want a place with equal rights. I want a place where people just get along. Am I asking too much, Kurt? That It's always a tough question because if people say that you're asking too much, so don't ask those questions, then we never ask enough, do we? Well, I think uh, there's uh, the aspect of Buddhism that... Uh, dreams of a brighter future. Some people say that the Buddha thought this world was beyond redemption, but I think the vast majority of Buddhists always were hoping to bring the Buddha land, the pure land, right down here to earth, and we can make this world a good one. I have not given up hope yet. I think it's important to not give up hope, and if you look at protest movements throughout time, um, I, I saw something just the other day uh, when Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus. I think that protest movement lasted 381 days. And we're only, what, 10 days, two weeks into these Black Lives Matters protests. No one's going to give in when people protest after a week or two. I don't think we should ever give in. Now, it may not always be marching in the streets. There may be times to settle down and come back and start talking to each other, but we can't give up the fight. But that's the thing about fighting as a Buddhist. We fight without violence. I believe we fight, but without anger. We fight, but demanding peace. It's a hard trick to do, but you can work for change, but forsake violence. Do you believe that, Kirk? I do. Um, and in fact, the metaphors that we use, um, fighting for change, make it sound like it has to be violent, yet it doesn't have to be violent. As we can see in these demonstrations recently, the majority of them are quite peaceful. And in fact, it's the police who are the ones who are acting violent. It's a bit hypocritical to use police brutality on people who are protesting against police brutality. It's really proving their point quite easily. Well, I'm going to say, too, uh, I have a lot of friends who are police. Not every police is the bad guy. We must hope for a world in which the police are respected and the people in the community are respected, that everyone is respected who respects others. I criticize the police, of course, who use excess violence. But there are a lot of police who are also just trying to do their job to make a better community. We cannot lose sight of that these days. But let, let's get back up. We're going to talk about that more. But let's get back to how to fight with nonviolence. You're right, that word fighting 
sounds like we're supposed to really throw firebombs and smash a window. It's counterproductive, I think. It's counterproductive. If we're going to truly fix this world, we have to get to a place where we do not attack each other. Now, some you know, do you get angry sometimes, Kirk? Um, I get angry a number of things. It's it's really frustrating when you're getting angry at the world around you or at what a group of people are doing or what a system's doing. It's frustrating because that anger, you can't channel that anger by yelling at your neighbor or yelling at the guy who cut you off on the road. There's no one to yell at. Well, you know, a good point this week is that uh, those of us who are not on the receiving end of injustice have no right to tell the angry people not to be angry. But I'm going to do it a little bit anyway from this standpoint. I'm a member of this society where we all have to get along. So I want to encourage people, don't be angry. You can be, how to say, justifiably outraged. You can be determined. You can stick to your guns and assert and work for what you truly believe in. But don't add more anger and hate to a situation where you're resisting someone's hate and anger. It just makes it worse. The Buddha said, do not answer anger with anger. We answer anger with peace. There's a reason for that. And it, it can be just as effective, just as effective, more effective. Look, look, if there's a store like a coffee shop and I smash their window, you know, to work for change, they're just going to board up the window. But if we use nonviolence, maybe someone will respect us and listen to it. I think that's gotten through to the protesters this week, too. Well, I don't think the protesters were, were violent in the beginning. I think the big difference is that uh, mayors and governors have told the police to back off and stop beating people. And, you know, this is not a political podcast, but how can life not be political in some ways? When I saw the film of the, what happened in Buffalo, a 75-year-old man walked up to the police and actually he had picked up one of the cop's helmets to give him back. The guy pushed him down onto the ground. He cracked his skull and all the cops just walked past him. Um, the person was not angry. He wasn't violent. He wasn't, he, he was just trying to help. Any police or anyone who uses excess force, who harms another person without justification. The only justification I can think of is really self-defense. Right, if your that, wife is threatened. I mean, Buddhists will argue about that. Are you allowed to use some self-defense? And many Buddhists will say radically, no, you, if someone's attacking you, you just have to take it. But I, I recognize, and I think many, the majority of Buddhist teachers I know, at least in the West and in Japan too, would say, you know, there's some degree of self-defense. But anyone who uses excess force should be prosecuted. But I don't think all police use excess force. And I think the protesters got a bad rap because people were saying uh, on, in some quarters, all the protests are violent. One of our leaders, who will not be named, was saying, you know, this is all dominated by these uh, radical, violent uh, folks. No, it wasn't true. It was a few bad apples who were looting. 
some who were smashing windows and throwing firebombs. And the vast majority of protests have been beautiful, have been peaceful. And that is, that's the way it should be. It is. And uh, what's really reassuring, and, you know, we both grew up in the States and we don't live in the States anymore. So we're watching this from a distance. But what's really reassuring now is to see so many white people coming out um, for these protests, because as long as we can remember, black people have been protesting oppression and they've been struck down and stepped on and ignored. And finally, enough white people are coming out to make a difference. I mean, heck, even Mitt Romney marched yesterday. You can't get any whiter you know, than Mitt Romney. I think if you look at the 60s and even in the 50s, there were a lot of people from all different groups who supported uh, those groups. I don't want to get into a personal story, but my parents were big uh, in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. At times, my mother uh, got uh, hauled away a couple of times, and uh, I grew up uh, that kind of family. Uh, well, there were famously a fair number of white people, but the numbers we're seeing now are exceptional. And ju just to point out, you know, we're white and we've grown up and lived with white privilege and Zen is excessively white. Um, yes. So it, it's kind of important for us to not only be aware, but to understand that we can't understand what these people are feeling. We can only support. Uh, we can only give space. but. I think we do need to be out there marching and supporting for people's righteous sense of injustice. There is victimization here. Now, you asked, you know, as a Zen fellow, should we be political like this? That's a question. There are some Zen teachers who claim that we shouldn't be political at all. Um, and others who are very, very much involved in politics. So there's no one size fits all among Zen teachers, is there? Well, I know a, a fellow who says that uh, Zen teachers should never be involved in politics, that politics and Zen don't mix at all. And I don't think it's quite so simple. Let me, let me tell you why. You know, 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, the teachers had no choice. When you lived in ancient India, ancient China, you were living in uh, dictatorships with kings and emperors and samurai. If you spoke up, if you challenged the society at all, they'd march in, they'd kill the priests, they'd burn the temple. Very simple. Problem solved. It's only in the last hundred years or so that priests could stand up and look out at the society and start talking about what's going on. In Dogen's time, that's Dogen is uh, the founder of Soto Zen in the 13th century, the world outside had much injustice, civil wars, uh, poverty, uh, leaders, and the peasants who followed them. All you could do is go in the monastery, close the doors. Now, for the first time, priests actually can throw the doors open and comment on what's going on outside. It wasn't an option. But here's why it's okay, in, if you're careful about it, I think, to mix Zen and politics. We don't mix all politics, but we do get concerned when our precepts and our vows to help sentient beings call on us to go out into the world to save lives. 
to end violence, to end the suffering of small children. Some people say that when we take a vow to save sentient beings, what we're trying to do is to teach them a view beyond this world, where there's no hungry mouth to feed, and there's no need, and there's nothing to be upset about. This is true. We do try to show people this. But down here on Earth, there are still children with hungry mouths to feed and without shoes and people without homes. We try to show them their true home beyond the concerns of this world. Yes, that's Buddhism. We're still trying to look beyond. But down here on Earth, there are people without homes tonight. And we want to make a society in which people have homes. because. If we want people to practice Buddhism, even the Buddha's day, the Buddha knew, oh, you're going to practice Buddhism, you need food, you need a place to sleep, you need safety. So he organized his community, and Dogen organized his monastery, where everybody had the basic. They had food, they had a safe place to sleep, they had uh, access to education. They even had what passed for medical care back in the 13th century, which was leeches or whatever they were using. And when you have those things, then you can practice. Now, I'm sorry I'm doing a soliloquy here right now. Go get yourself a coffee, Kirk. It's okay. I'm, I'm just listening. You can work in a temple as practice and doing something besides just meditating, sitting zazen. You cook to feed the monks. You clean the temple floors, right? You fix something like a window that's broken. Well, you can take that same attitude of cooking to feed the monks to make a soup kitchen to feed the poor. If you can clean the floors of the temple, you can clean an ocean. If there's something, a window to fix in the temple, you can fix what's wrong with society with the same attitude. That is part of practice. That's how we can practice Zen and also have an interest in social causes. When you talk about someone in a monastery, you look at someone who's withdrawn. And I can understand that historically, there was a distance where the monasteries were in Japan. They were up in mountains in China. It was the same. So they were far from society. But that's not the case today. Um, Zen practice centers, let's not use the term monasteries, but practice centers, uh, with the exception of Tree Leaf, which is just in this virtual space, they're mostly in cities. They're mostly among people. And I'm sure that many of them, if not most of them, do work to help people around them, as you say, soup kitchens or helping people with illnesses or other things like that. I, I think it's uh, very true. And I, I want to give credit to uh, the Christians on this because Engaged Buddhism, being socially engaged, came a little bit in the 19th century from competition with Christian minister, ministries. The Buddhists a little bit were about withdrawing from the world. They did have some social programs. They had orphanages and the temples and things. But the Christians really came and said, okay, for our reasons, we're going to build hospitals and we're going to, to help the, the poor. So the, the Buddhists did become more engaged in that in Asia and the West. But the, the, there's never been a time like the late 20th century and, and today when Buddhist people, priests and lay folks, can work to make this world better because we're part of this world. 
Now, in the old days, there, there were temples in cities, but they'd close the doors. There was nothing you can do about the outside world. You couldn't end the poverty in those days. Now we have a chance. Now we have a chance to really fix things. My cat has shown up. <laughs> One of my cats is asleep against the wall over here. Okay. Cats are good to have, I think, to yeah. remind you that things can be a lot simpler. Exactly. Anyway, uh, now you can go outside. You're part of the world, and we can fix things. So should Zen Buddhists be out there marching together? Should there be groups of Zen Buddhists out there expressing their Zen Buddhistness? Well, there should be. And if I, uh, I'm in Japan, it's a little quiet here. There are some marches in Tokyo. I'm a little far away, but I would be out there too. Uh, I think we can, but we must do it with a certain attitude. And this frustrates some of the people who come to our Sangha too. I really need to explain when people come. I tell them that outside, have a meeting, make a plan, write a pamphlet, carry a sign, shout, resist if you need, with nonviolence, right? Us versus them. We have to change them. We have to vote for the guy we want outside, right? But when you come into the Zen group, for the time you're inside the Zen group, there's a reason why you must kind of leave most of that at the door. When you come into the Zen group, put aside us versus them. Put aside your goals to change, that you need to change something. Have equanimity and accept things as they are. We even say that we drop a hard sense of right and wrong. Because we just say the world is just right the way it is. Notice how I say that. I didn't say that it's right the way it is. It's just what it is. It's just right as it is. Okay, so you mentioned earlier a certain Zen teacher who said that politics should not be involved in Zen in any way. And how do you square the two that when you come into the Zen group, you said you should drop the idea of right and wrong and us right. and them. but isn't that what the certain unnamed Zen teacher was saying, that politics should be dropped? Well, no. Yes, that's what he was saying. But that's okay. not what I and I would say the majority of Western teachers would say. Because in the Zen Sangha, you can still speak about the precepts, about those causes where our precepts call on us. For example, everyone I think should help get health care in the United States for everyone because it's a matter of saving lives. I believe that having people being able to walk the streets and be free of violence and uh, from the police or anyone is a matter of preserving life. So I will speak about that. But I tell people when they come in the Zen group, for the time they're there, for the time we're sitting, we put down me and you. We put down, oh, I like that politician, but I hate the other one. We accept all of it. The politicians are who they are. Even the bad police are who we are. We sit with it. Why? With the sense of healing 
and wholeness and peace that we develop in that way. With the sense that we accept the world as it is, we can then rise up, rise up from the sitting cushion, go back outside and start again to work for change, start again to try to make things right. But what we discovered inside, that wholeness, that beauty, that equanimity now perfumes, becomes part of our actions out in the world. The way I often talk about it is we learn to accept even what we can't accept. We learn to feel equanimity about the fact that there are some things that are not right and we're now going to work to fix it. We call it goalless goals, working for changeless change. You can learn in Zen that there is nothing to change and there is no goal. Then get back out into the world where we have things to change and have goals, and you find that the two ways fit together. If you just go out and you're dissatisfied with the world and you need to change and this world just sucks, you're going to be hurting yourself as much as the other people who come in contact. That's a very dark way to approach the world. But if some way inside, somewhere, you have acceptance, equanimity, peace, and then you go out and work for change, you're going to spread that feeling of peace and equanimity to others, and your working for change, I think, is going to be even more effective. I think one thing that these protests show is how the interdependence of people um, is necessary and vital and essential, that if one person is out there protesting, no one notices. If 10 people are out there, people walk by and glance at them. But when you have 10,000 or 100,000 or a million, then all of those individuals fused together into a group have a great deal of power. This is a basic Buddhist lesson that we're all in this together. The whole world is in this together. We all support each other. But, you know, the monastery in Dogen's day was created as a kind of kibbutz. We've spoken about this before, a kind of utopia. Master Dogen, when he created the monastery, could not change the world outside, so he tried to make an ideal world inside. And the way this worked was all the monks supported all the monks. All the monks treated each other with respect. All the monks had opportunity. All the monks had fair opportunity and access to resources that were available. Everybody ate. Everybody basically had a clean place to sleep. Everybody was free from an atmosphere of violence, hopefully. Well, we need to take that ideal and spread it out into the world. Everyone should have access to basic resources. Everyone should be free from danger. Everyone should treat others with kindness. Nobody should be subject to violence. I think it's time we take the monastic model. We don't all have to be celibate, by the way. That's We'll, we'll, we'll leave that in the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> but we can spread out. There you go, bending the rules to suit yourself. <laughs> Well, Master Dogen, you know, he was very strict. He, he had all these rules. You have to sleep a certain way. You have yeah. to dress a certain way. We're not going to 
go that far. We don't have to be so strict like Master Dogen about having rules for everything because we're, we're lay people. We're out in the world. But the basic idea of everybody having rights and duties is responsible. We, we, you know, you as a citizen also have duties to take care of yourself and be upright in this world too. And in return, the officials, the authorities need to treat you with respect. So you posted something on the Treeleaf Forum about the Meta Chant. Can you tell me about that? Yes. The Meta Chant is a lovely tradition from South Asian Buddhism uh, that has become very popular in the Zen world, in the West especially, in which usually we chant for the peace, contentment, well-being, health, and uh, kindness of people we know, people in our family or even difficult people in our lives. But this week in our Sangha, we chanted for everyone, and I mean everyone involved in social unrest. And it took some explaining as to why we were chanting for everyone, because we chanted for the peaceful protesters and, of course, the social groups and individuals who are feeling oppressed. But we also chanted wishing peace, contentment, good health, well-being, kindness for the looters and the violent. And we chanted for all police, both those who do their duty and the ones who do wrong. And we chanted for all leaders, all politicians, the ones we agree with and the ones we think are doing harm in society. And this is the tough one. We chanted for the well-being, contentment, health, peace, and kindness of the worst bigot uncle you know who uses all the words he shouldn't use and really hates people, as well as all of us who have some prejudice. And I don't think anybody ex escapes without some prejudice about somebody. Somebody has prejudice. But all of us inside, and I include myself, have something, have some prejudice within us. So we chanted for all of them. Why? Why would we chant for the health, contentment, well-being, peace and kindness of, of the worst bigot you know? With this idea in mind, if they truly knew contentment and peace, if they truly were healthy in mind and body, if they truly were accepting and kind, they would not be like that. The policeman who did violence, if he truly knew peace, and kindness, he would not do the excess violence. So we chanted for everyone to heal the world. It takes some explaining, but that's the meta chant. Okay, Jundo, thank you for that. Um, what's next? Where do we go from here? I hope to a better world. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.